focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our usual Wednesday reporters in Yoon Jung and Han Da-eun. Guys, welcome back. Good, Good evening. evening. Good evening to you. We knew there was going to be a lot of shakeup here and there within the cabinet, but also we talked about as uh, the now former Korea Communications uh, Commission Chief Lee dong resigned after another threat of impeachment by the main opposition Democratic Party. President Yoon suk on this Wednesday named Kim Hong-il, uh, as the, who is the chief of the Anti-Corruption Commission, as the new and now the new head of the Korea Communications Commission, uh, while Lee Hee-won, a Navy captain, was also named the new Vice Minister of Patriots and Veterans Affairs. Hejong, you're going to start us off. Uh, let's talk about the latest nomination from uh, President Yoon. Right. First, Kim Hong-il, who was nominated to head the Korea Communications Commission, is a former prosecutor who has built solid relationships with President Yoon Seok-yeol for a long time and is the current head of the Anti-Corruption and Civil Rights Commission. Kim, born in 1956 in Yeshan, in the central province of South Chungcheong, is known for overcoming his difficult childhood as he lost his mother in elementary school and his father in high school. As the eldest son, he had to take care of his three orphaned younger siblings and postponed going to college for three years after high school graduation. Kim entered Chungnam National University's College of Law on a full scholarship in 1975 and became the university's first person to pass the state judicial exam in 1982. While in the prosecution, Kim led a number of high-profile investigations, including one into former President Lee Myung-bak's corruption allegations. Kim left the prosecution in 2013 and joined a law firm, and in July this year, he took office as head of the Anti-Corruption and Civil Rights Commission. On a side note, President Yoon had once worked under Kim at the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office and said Kim was one of his most trusted senior prosecutors. Besides strong trust from Yoon, Kim is also recognized for his fairness and leadership. Uh, next, moving on to Navy Colonel Lee Hee-won, who was appointed as the new Vice Minister of Patriots and Veterans Affairs. He is a figure who led the Battle of Yeonpyeong, which is a naval clash between the South and North Korea back in 2002. Back then, Colonel Lee fought in place of the commanding officer who was killed in the North Korean raid. Although Colonel Lee lost his right leg to a North Korean shell, he fought fiercely with his crew and contributed to the victory. The presidential office said Colonel Lee is a national hero who defended the northern limit line on behalf of his chief, which shows the Yoon administration's firm commitment to building a country where heroes are treated with respect. Now, other than these two appointments, Oh Seok-kwan, the current education secretary in the presidential office, was appointed as the vice minister of education. Oh is an expert in primary and secondary education policy, having served as the deputy superintendent in the Daegu Office of Education. The appointment was made as Chang Sang-yoon, the former vice minister of education, was named as the social chief of the presidential office. In the meantime, the Parliamentary Committee under the National Election Commission has submitted 
an electoral division, uh, district revision plan that will be applied in next year's April general elections. Now, it also called for bipartisan efforts uh, to swiftly fix the revision that's already passed the legal deadline. Uh, I know we're going to be talking about this extensively later on with Professor Choi Gyung, but first we'll get the overview of this. Uh, Tan, give us a snapshot of the new plan here. Sure. So the key of the electoral district reorganization can be summed up in three main points. A, the total number of constituencies will be kept at the current 253. B, six constituencies will be integrated, while six constituencies will be divided. And C, as a result, one parliamentary seat will be reduced each in Seoul and North Chola province, while Incheon and Gyeonggi province will each add one more. For the details, let's start with uh, the bigger frame and work our way in. The total number of constituencies will be maintained at 253, and the population base for fixing the constituency demarcation was set at 136,600 people or more, and uh, between, that is between 136,600 people or more, and 273,200 people or less. Now, beginning with Seoul, no one district A, B, and C have been integrated into no one district A and B, reducing one parliamentary seat up for grabs in the constituency. In North Chola province, the current constituency is divided into four groups, namely counties of Gochang, Suncheong, Puan, and Wanju, Jinan, Muju, Changsu all combined. Now, these four groups will be integrated into three groups, which will cut one parliamentary seat in the province. Meanwhile, Incheon will add one more seat as Seogu District A and B will be divided into Seogu District A, B, and C. Gyeonggi Province will also add one more seat as three constituencies, Pyeongtaek, Hanam, and Hwasong, will further be divided, while two constituencies in Pucheon and Ansan will be combined. Now, there will also be a few integrations and divisions in Busan and South Chola province as well, but it'll leave the number of electoral districts intact uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the parliamentary seats in those districts intact. Mm -hmm. The Parliamentary Electoral District Committee pointed out that it's very regrettable that they were unable to find a way to resolve the problem of the so-called super-large constituencies as they had no choice but to comply with the current election law, which prohibits constituency reorganization proportionate to population, and also that prohibits partial division of autonomous districts, cities, and counties. It called for efforts to revise the law going forward. It also called for swift confirmation of the electoral district revision plan to avoid infringement of citizens' basic rights. The legal deadline to fix constituencies of the April general election was April 10th this year, one year ahead of the election day. Very complicated process, by the way. And uh, again, the National Assembly announcing the proposed electoral district map uh, for next year's general election. And there's going to be obviously a lot of uh, conflict in regards to this. The main opposition Democratic Party has actually strongly rejected the plan, saying it's unfair and partisan. 
Hejong, uh, what do we know so far into uh, to what they were saying? Right. As we've just covered, the National Election Commission proposed a plan for next year's general elections, which was submitted to the National Assembly. The total number of constituencies in the proposed plan was 253, the same as the last general election, as Tan mentioned. However, there are some changes in the number of seats by region. First, there are six districts districts that are going to lose seats. Seoul's Noon, Gyeonggi's Bucheon and Ansan, Busan's Namgu, and Jeonbuk and Jeonnam, which originally had four seats, will be reduced to three. Four of the six districts that are facing cuts are in areas where only the Democratic Party incumbents were elected, so this does have uh, quite an impact on the Democratic Party's general election strategy. Right. So the main opposition Democratic Party strongly opposed to the redistricting plan and said it would discuss uh, demanding a proposal of a resubmission at the National Assembly level. The party said that this decision is very partisan, only reflecting the opinion of the ruling People Power Party. Now, on the other hand, some districts will be gaining seats. Incheon's Seogu, Gyeonggi's Pyeongtaek, Hanam, and Hwasong, as well as Busan's Bukgu and Jeonnam, will each gain an extra electoral district. Regarding the proposal, the PPP said they agree with the general framework and that the proposal was drawn, taking into account the population change of the regions and not how much it would benefit a certain political party. In the meantime, the National Assembly's Special Committee on Political Reform passed a bill to prohibit election campaigns utilizing deepfake, such as an AI of President Yoon Seok-yeol or an AI of DP leader Lee Jae-myung, starting 90 days before the election. And if the bill passes in the plenary session of the National Assembly, it will be applied right away to the upcoming general election. Yeah, can you imagine deepfake being used in political campaigns, right, to make it look like certain <coughs> candidates are saying things that they never uh, did uh, or, you know, make foolish statements here and there. And so these are all things. Remember, now we're kind of easily, slowly easing into this new era of AI technology and there needs to be rules in place. And this is uh, one of them. But again, going back to, of course, the adding of certain seats in certain regions and removing of seats in certain regions uh, in regards to next year's general elections. We'll talk more about this with Professor Choi Gyeong from Hongik University in the second hour of the program, so do stick around. Uh, in the meantime, the chief of the ruling People Power Party's Innovation Committee, In Yohan, and uh, PPP chief Kim Gyeon, they met their highly anticipated uh, meeting right now, as all eyes are on whether the two will be able to meet halfway regarding a party reformation uh, is the big question here. Don, what do we know so far in regards to the meeting today? Well, as you know, there's been a wide rift between the two over the Innovation Committee's reform proposal that aims to improve the party at the cost of the PPP's mainstream members. To give background information for our listeners who may not be familiar with this news, Innovation Committee Chief In Yohan at the end of last month, asked party leadership to accept its proposal of transforming the party by making core members and pro Yoon loyalists to either refrain from running for the April general election or run in tough constituencies that are liberal strongholds. In also asked Kim to recommend him as chairman of the nomination management committee if the party leadership does not accept the reform proposal. 
Kim immediately rejected the request, and so uh, the suggested proposal was not submitted to Monday's Supreme Council meeting. But the two met late this afternoon in their last-ditch effort to strike a deal before the Supreme Council's big meeting on party reform set for tomorrow. And it seems like they've averted the worst-case scenario. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're still waiting for more details of the meeting, but reports are trickling in that Chairman Kim Gion has made some compromise and said he will seek to submit a reform proposal during another big meeting set for next Monday. And and the, the proposal will likely include In's original proposal, you know, um, reforming the party at the cost of some mainstream right. members. And In has reportedly confirmed uh, Chairman Kim's will to make sacrifices for party overhaul, while Kim promised to push for a reform that respects the opinions from the Innovation Committee. Now, if the two fail to meet halfway uh, and come up with a solution in the end, PPP members are likely to demand early dissolvement of the Innovation Committee. Um, the PPP members are, of course, observing today's meeting with wary eyes uh, as the party is now on the brink of a return to to those unstable situations right after the party's crushing defeat in the Kangsa district by-election. Yeah, a lot of uh, changes being made after, like you mentioned, the uh, the, the Kangsa uh, elections, right? Uh, there was talks about the PPP right now. Uh, one of the things that they want to do in next year's general elections is a lot of these areas where it's dominated by the ruling PPP, they want to put in uh, younger candidates, basically, uh, have younger politicians, start them on early, and then, of course, put them in easy areas where, again, anybody can just go in and they'll part, you know, pick uh, you know, one, nevertheless, and then start their career there and build up new leaders for the party. And so they're trying to put in a lot of changes here and there. But again, it is interesting that there was this rift with the Innovation Committee and the uh, the party chief there. But uh, we'll see what happens with the meeting. Again, uh, we don't have the outcomes of what they have potentially talked about. But if we do get it, uh, hopefully we'll be able to cover that uh, tomorrow. Let's move on to other issues here. Korea's uh, Ministry of Health and Welfare held a meeting on Wednesday morning with the Presidential Committee on Aging Society and Population Policy, uh, where experts discussed measures to respond to South Korea's ever-low uh, birth rate problem. Hejong, let's get more on this. Now, this was the first expert advisory meeting where experts from various fields such as population policy and urban planning gathered to respond to the steep birth rate decline Korea is facing. The Korean government plans to gather the suggestions of today's meeting, go through consultation with relevant government ministries, and then devise necessary policies to boost the country's birth rate. Yigir, the first vice minister of health and welfare, cited a New York Times column which said Korea is facing a depopulation exceeding what the Black Death delivered to Europe in the 14th century. The column was titled, Is South Korea Disappearing? And Taun will have more on the specific numbers. But it is quite striking that Korea's birth rate has dropped below one child per woman in 2018 to 0.8 after the pandemic. And now in provisional data for the second and third quarters of 2023 to just 0.7 births per woman. 
The first vice minister added that the government sees the current declining birth rate as a desperate cry of the younger people in Korea, saying that it is time for a pan-national consultative group to be formed to respond to the crisis, just like the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasures Headquarters was formed during COVID to fight the virus. The government will continue to communicate with experts, young married couples and businesses to identify the causes of the declining birth rate and prepare effective countermeasures. Additionally, it plans to hold expert advisory meetings on a regular basis to review structural improvements in the economy, society and culture, as well as in childbirth and parenting support. The government also plans to hold a series of family storming meetings with young married couples, which, as you can guess, is a combination of family and brainstorming, to discuss in-depth about forming different types of new families. And tomorrow, the Welfare Ministry will hold a meeting with childless households, uh, which will later be followed by meetings with unmarried uh, households, uh, single child households, and households with two or more children. Again, it, it seems like either every quarter or every year we talk about a new record low in birth rate uh, here in the country. It really does seem like uh, the birth rate continues to nosedive with uh, no end in sight, which again is prompting uh, warnings from academia and institutions from all across the globe. And Bank of Korea uh, was actually the latest in line to release a report on the country's birth rate crisis and its projections Quite frightening. Uh, Tan, give us the details of their projection. Right. The report says the South Korean economy will stop growing and start posting minus growth in less than 30 years if Korea fails to tackle birth rate decline. That's falling at the fastest pace in the world. It also projected the overall population will fall below 40 million from the current 51 million in 2070. According to the central bank's latest report, Korea's total fertility rate, the number of children on average that a woman aged between 15 and 49 has during her lifetime, plunged to 0.81, the lowest level among the 35 OECD member countries in 2021. And according to Statistics Korea, the fertility rate plummeted to 0.7 down in the third quarter, down 0.1 from a year earlier, uh, hitting a fresh quarterly low in the third quarter. It marked the lowest figure for any third quarter readings since the government's first data in 2009. And Korea marked the second lowest uh, birth rate of 0.77 among 217 countries and regions, including the OECD member nations. Hong Kong was the only country that uh, posted birth rate lower than Korea. Korea also posted the fastest birth rate decline among the 217 countries. The figure plunged 86% from 5.95 to 0.8%. One from 1960 to 2021. The BOK warned if the current trend continues with no proper measures to resolve the grave situation, Korea has a 68% chance of reporting negative growth in 2050. And its overall population, again, will fall below 40 million in 2070 from the current 51 million. The report cited anxiety among the younger population over Korea's notoriously 
tough competition everywhere, basically difficulties in getting a job and unattainable residential costs as the main factors dragging down the birth rate. The BOK analyzed that figures will rise to the OECD average of around 0.8 if the government comes up with measures to lower home prices ease urban concentration and raise employment rates among unmarried young people. And it also predicted that the total fertility rate will be raised by 0.1 if the time of childcare leave is raised to levels of OECD average. Yeah, and unfortunately, I mean, we've seen in a number of different governments and administrations uh, doing what they can to try to lower the real estate prices. It's never worked. I mean, that, that was kind of like the downfall of the previous Moon administration, right? That they were putting all these policies left and right and try, trying to tackle the prices. The only thing that worked was high interest rates, right? But it's, it's not even like, the, the, you know, you, the government can't go, well, in order to ease the burden on the people so that uh, houses are more uh, affordable, what we're going to do is really increase the mortgage rates so that it brings down the, uh, the the prices of the homes. But you can buy it, but you if you want to borrow, it's going to cost you a lot to borrow. So it doesn't work that way neither, right? People are going already burdened with the high interest rates right now. And so it's hard to tackle that. I mean, there was an interesting article that I read uh, earlier today and a number of things that uh, is affected by the country's low birth rate. And this is one thing that I think a lot of people don't talk about, uh, military conscription. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now, I believe uh, the Korean military uh, has have to obtain the number 1.2 so, uh, 2 million soldiers is the figure that they have to obtain. And they're seeing that because of the low birth rate and people, of course, uh, less children obviously means later on when they grow up, less kids going over to uh, military, they're not going to be able to fill in those amounts. And they're even, I believe, earlier this year, I believe they, they, the Korean government also talked about uh, female volunteers uh, going into the military as well. And so I would definitely volunteer if I was you, young enough. Yeah, you would be <laughs> the minister of veterans affairs in like a few years. I, I'm really into I, I have strong passion for military stuff. You she, know? she does. And, and you worked uh, as a what is it, a defense correspondent. Yes. Right? Oh, perhaps that's why. Yes. As a defense minister correspondent that's for one right. year. I had the honor to do that. Yes. There you go. We don't doubt you, Dan. I think you really, really would be a very good soldier. Uh, also today, I think one thing that uh, Korea doesn't really cover enough of, and I think they should do, uh, South Korean government unveiling a set of initiatives to change the way South Korea treats and views mental health in order to slash the country's high suicide rate by half within 10 years. Hejung, let's get more on this. With South Korea ranking first for suicide rates among the OECD countries last year, the Ministry of Health and Welfare has unveiled uh, new initiatives that aim to better deal with mental health issues. President Yoon Seo-gyeol explains that the plan is all-encompassing. To improve old mental health policies, which focused on after-the-fact treatment and not prevention, the new approach is more proactive and highlights four key tasks. First, the government aims to build a system that can be integrated into people's everyday lives. This involves launching mobile mental health checkups through the messenger app 
Kakao Talk and integrating the Suicide Prevention Emergency Hotline under a brand new number, which is 109. And the government also plans to increase counseling support for young people at universities and in workplaces. Second, there will be swift and continuous treatment and management, management of severe patients. The government will also increase financial support for outpatient care by keeping in touch with those who have suffered severe mental health problems. Next, as for the long term strategy for people with severe mental health issues, better housing support for economically independent living will be provided. These people will also be officially recognized as a socially vulnerable group, and more people will be eligible for medical insurance, even if they have a, a record of mental health issues. Because, as per now, some insurance companies don't offer the insurance coverage to these people. Last, the government will improve awareness of mental illness, illnesses to dispel prejudice. Efforts will be made through nationwide campaigns and university club activities so that mental health issues are understood in a similar way to physical ailments. The Minister of Health and Welfare Ministry, Cho Gyu Hong, says that with bold investments in mental health care, The government will provide mental health care services to all nationals and residents whenever and wherever and build a society where people with mental illnesses can adjust to society seamlessly. And although a specific start date hasn't been revealed,、uh, through these four main strategies, the government plans to provide psychological counseling to 1 million people by 2027 and bring down the country's suicide rate by 50% within 10 years. Again, it's, it's one of those like taboo issues, right? I mean, like when you look at over in the United States, like people, as long as they have money, they have like a therapist. I mean, you have to pay them like $200 an hour and stuff like that, but like they get therapy and stuff. And it's not, no one is going to call you crazy for getting therapy.、Uh, but here in Korea, I believe if you're trying, if you're, if you have maybe, I, I don't want to say mental illness,、uh, but if you're, The aspects of your mental,、uh, mental aspects are frail and you need help.、Uh, everyone thinks you're a crazy person, and there's this stigma towards people、uh, with issues.、Uh, and so they're afraid to get help. But I think this is a、uh, great policy right now by the government because this is, again, an issue not addressed enough here in the Korean society. And、uh, Elisha says,、uh, yes, this is more important. I say, let's worry about keeping people alive and motivated first and worry about making more babies when the mental、uh, environment is better. Well, if we could tackle two problems at once, that'd be good too.、Uh, in the meantime, South Korean students rank at the highest levels in a reading and science literacy test conducted by the OECD. Are we surprised now? Scoring. Rec- uh, recording scores remarkably higher than the average.、Uh, this, despite、uh, the COVID 19 impact on education. Don, can you tell us more? You know, when we think about all the staggering private education costs and all the negative、mm-hmm. impacts uh, soci- uh, in the society、uh, from the, the fierce competition at schools, we really just, you know, simply we can't just simply be happy about it. But the students, Korean students, really pulled off a remarkable job. The test is called Called 
Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, mm -hmm. run by the OECD. It tests the problem-solving abilities in mathematics, reading, and science of 15-year-olds in over 80 countries, including 37 OECD member nations. And South Korean 15-year-olds were among the top performers in mathematics, reading, and science among their peers from the OECD member nations. According to the PISA report, Korean students scored 527 points in mathematics, 515 points in reading, and 528 points in science, far higher than the OECD average. Among the students from all the countries surveyed, Korean students ranked between third and seventh in mathematics, between second and twelfth in reading, and between second and ninth in science. The rankings were broadly set uh, in consideration of sampling errors. Pit against peers from the OECD member nations, Korean students came in between first and second place in mathematics, first and seventh in reading, and second and fifth in science. Uh, a total of 6,931 students from 186 schools across Korea participated in the survey. The report pointed out that during years of disruption, education disruption triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic, many countries saw student learning outcomes decline. But Korea, Japan, Lithuania, and Chinese Taipei were able to maintain or even improve learning outcomes, fairness in the distribution of learning opportunities, and student well-being. And there were solid numbers to prove this point. Korean students performed better than the last PISA test uh, that was held in 2018. Last year's scores were one point higher both in mathematics and reading and nine points higher in science. But things were quite the opposite for many other countries, which dragged down the OECD averages from 489 points to 472 in maths, from 487 to 476 in reading, and from 489 to 485 in science. Of all the countries surveyed, Singapore scored the highest points in all three categories, uh, while Japanese students clinched the top spot in both mathematics and science. Irish students topped the reading scores. I mean, these are all remarkable figures, right? I mean, there's, there's no doubt that Korean students are smart. I mean, I, that was the one thing that was very shocked was when I saw like my uh, cousin back when he was in middle school and he said he needed help in math and I looked at it and I just walked out of the room. <laughs> Because it's like college-level math that they're looking at, it's like American college-level math. <laughs> you know, this reminds me of something. You know, back in high school, I went to an international school in Beijing, mm -hmm. and uh, this uh, one British girl, I remember her always asking me math questions, <laughs> like always asking me for help, and she always called me a math genius, and I was just doing the basics. <laughs> <laughs> Because you, were you the only Asian in the class? No, no, no. There were many Asians, okay. but, uh, well, I was one of the brightest ones. Uh, <laughs> there you but, go. I, but see, but I want to say, though, that, I mean, these numbers are good, but then when we go into the happiness index for the kids, uh, right? That's I a mean, whole other story. It's a different story. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of, you know, there's a big trade-off here. I mean, how are these kids getting these high scores? Well, it's all the time that they're putting on these private education, right? And then, then that leads to burden on the parents and that leads to the birth rate all of this all linked together here uh let's move on go over to the middle east this time the israeli forces have resumed fighting since 
A brief uh, seven-day ceasefire last week, uh, really launching a full-scale ground attack in the southern region of the Gaza Strip. They have now reached the heart of Khan Yunus. Uh, this is where many people who fled uh, from northern Gaza at these early stages of the armed conflict are. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the Israeli Defense Forces should retain control of the region for the disarmament of Gaza after the war. Hedron, let's get the latest updates from the Middle East. Israel resumed air and ground attacks on the Gaza Strip on Friday local time after the end of a week-long humanitarian pause with Hamas. And on Tuesday, the Israel Defense Forces reached southern Gaza's main city of Khan Yunis, marking what they called the most intense day of combat in five weeks of ground operations against Hamas. Backed by warplanes and tanks, the IDF reached the heart of the city where many Palestinians who fled since the start of the armed conflict are now situated. According to the chief of Israel's general staff, Israeli forces have secured many Hamas strongholds in the northern Gaza Strip and are now operating against its strongholds in the south. Meanwhile, Hamas said it killed 10 Israeli soldiers in the southern Gaza Strip on Tuesday local time. The group's armed wing, the Al-Qassam Brigade, said the soldiers were killed by its fighters at point-blank range in eastern Khan Yunis. The group said fighters also struck three Israeli tanks, two personnel carriers, and three military bulldozers with anti-armor shells east and north of Khan Yunis. Now, Gaza's health ministry says the death toll among Palestinians since the start of the armed conflict has now surpassed 16,000, with some 40,000 others injured. Israel has released online maps for Gazans, which indicates evacuation zones, but residents have stated that Israel is bombing even these zones, leaving them with no safe place to go. And although there is consistent pressure from the international community for a ceasefire, Israel has reaffirmed its determination to see an end to the war, even hinting at reoccupying Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected the idea that an international force could be responsible for security in the Gaza Strip after the war, saying that the IDF should retain control of the disarmament of Gaza, stating that he is not open to any other options. The Israeli military also reaffirmed its position that Hamas is most responsible for the civilian casualties due to its tunneling and military operations in residential neighborhoods and said that it has no choice but to use strong force to destroy those facilities. Hamas has said that there will be no negotiations or hostage releases until Israeli attacks stop. So as the fighting intensifies, the fate of the 138 hostages still being detained became more uncertain. So that comment by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is becoming very controversial to some people in the international community because if you're you're basically saying well let's say that the armed conflict is done and over with and the palestinians are allowed to return uh to gaza uh but you're still going to have idf kind of in the region uh controlling everything so that the hamas is so like do they really get does that mean that the palestinians 
do you really get back the land is the thing, right? I mean, if, it, if there's control by the, the, the Israeli, uh, def, what is it, the Israel Defense Forces, then is it really returning, the, the, uh, having them return, or is Israel kind of controlling uh, Gaza is the big question here. So again, we talked to, uh, we talked to uh, Professor Kelly about this yesterday, but it is, that's the big question. We don't know what's going to happen once everything is done and over with. And then the thing, if you look at history, Hamas will always go back, and which means that there's always going to be conflict, even if the IDF is kind of, uh, disarming Gaza, as they say it is. Uh, let's shift our focus to the prolonged war in Ukraine this time. Western allies are starting to see a crack in their support for the Ukrainian forces. The war is close to entering its second year. Rival political parties in the U.S. wrangling over Ukraine's support budget. Some countries in Europe are withdrawing from armed support as well. Tana, this is not so good for Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, let's get the latest on this. Right. Uncertainty is growing over uh, Western backing for Ukraine as the war rages on for nearly two years now. The White House has warned the U.S. Congress that funds designated for providing aid to Ukraine would run out by the end of this year in a letter made public on Monday. The U.S., Ukraine's biggest single country donor, has sent more than $40 billion in aid since Russia's invasion in February last year. And in October, President President Joe Biden asked Congress to approve $105 billion in national security funding, which would include support for Ukraine. But right-wing congressional Republicans have expressed increasing skepticism towards approving more funds for Ukraine, and some $61 billion in additional aid are now being held up by the U.S. Congress. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's chief of staff, Andriy Yermak pleaded for continual U.S. support, saying if the U.S. postpones military aid to Ukraine, there is a big risk the country could lose its war with Russia. But Republicans walked out of the Biden administration's classified briefing on a massive defense spending package on Tuesday that includes support for Ukraine, saying the administration officials did not provide answers to their questions on Ukraine beyond what's publicly available in unclassified public reports. The move came after the Ukrainian president Zelensky unexpectedly canceled a video link appearance at the briefing to appeal for continued U.S. funding. Meanwhile, the EU is also struggling to agree on a new 50 billion euro lifeline for Kyiv. Hungary has led arguments against the package, with Prime Minister Viktor Orban sticking to his pro-Russian stance. And the victory of the far right in the recent Netherlands election and fiscal challenges in Germany are also complicating uh, negotiations over the budget, uh, according to various local uh, foreign news outlets. Yeah, and this is exactly, I think, what Russia was planning for, right? I mean, initially, they didn't plan for a prolonged war. They thought they were going to be in and out in a, in a matter of months. But the longer this uh, drags on, actually, it works in favor of Russia. And they knew that the Western allies aren't going to be able to support them every year. <laughs> Excuse me. Every year for like the next uh, four or five years, right? I mean, they no no idea how long uh, this war is going to go. But uh, nevertheless, guys, thank you very much for these uh, reports. Have a safe one, and uh, we'll see you guys again. Thank, thank you. you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. 
So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.